What is up, everybody, and welcome back to episode 105 of the Brew Theology Podcast. This is part two, Honest to God, with Dr. Mark George, Jesse, Rob, and myself continue this conversation. We get into Ezekiel. You know, why not? Because we're talking about the Bible. And Mark's argument for the Hebrew God of the Hebrew Bible, in case you grew up Christian and you were confused, yeah, it, it all starts with, that's right, Israel, the Jews, the Hebrews, all that jazz. And so it's a good reminder always to have a Hebrew scholar in the house when you're talking about the Bible. We're actually going to have Dr. George back in February. It's always exciting to bring back people that you're like, this guy gels well with our group. Great chemistry, good times. And, you know, regardless if you actually agree or disagree with Mark or any of our theologians for that matter, or us, armchair theologians, we welcome all people to the table. We like to brew theology across the religious, non-religious, spiritual, and a-spiritual spectrum. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for your support. I know that when you listen to this, hopefully it does the body, the mind, the heart good, and you have great conversations with your friends and your family, wherever you are, whatever city, state, hey, whatever universe you're in. So thanks again for listening, and yeah, we will talk to you soon. Remember to share this online, at Brew Theology, all of our handles, except for Twitter. We are Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. Peace. Let's talk about Ezekiel. Can we do that? Because it, are, can you can, play Purple Haze to lead yeah. into this? <laughs> because but Ezekiel is it Ezekiel? If I, if I correct me if I'm wrong, and I, it's been a while since I've read Ezekiel, who talks about the sins of the fathers and the sins of of yourself. So don't worry so much about about what your fathers have done, but it's more about be responsible for yourself. And it, and I remember as a Protestant, we would always look at that particular passage, and I'm forgetting what chapter. And we would say, oh yeah, so it's not, it's, we were almost like we felt good. Like doesn't matter what others have done. It's all about what I've done. Yeah. And that, that helped with how we viewed Christianity and our personal relationship with Jesus Christ too. Yeah. Help us understand that Ezekiel passage. If I'm, if you could even give it more context, that'd be great. I haven't read Ezekiel since my master's. That's not entirely true. I've read it, but the sour uh, grapes and all that stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the, the, so as I said, Deuteronomy is on my mind all the time because in Deuteronomy you have, uh, um, how's it go that, that, uh, children are not punished for the sins of their parents or something like that. At the same time you have generational, um, yeah. things going on in, in the text. So, um, we should find that verse in Ezekiel cause I'd have to read it in context. So I, one of the things that you had talked about the other night that I would love for listeners who weren't there to be able to hear, you lived in New Jersey, and you talked about the turnpike, and then you related that to Israel, and then you started thinking more about Jersey, but then you got back to your point, which is a really good point. Can you go back to last Thursday and, and just kind of elaborate a bit more yeah. about that? So we have the Bible. It's These are texts that came from the people who were living in Israel, uh, Israel and Judah, in the New Testament, it's the the um, it's Palestine, and this is really a small landmass. It happens to be on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean, and the coastal route is part of the highway between the superpowers of the time. Uh, not so much in the Roman period, but in the in the Old Testament, 
Egypt was a power. It had times of ascendancy and times of decline. The Hittite Empire was in the north, roughly where modern Turkey is. You have the uh, Mesopotamian cultures, Assyria and Babylon, over in what's now modern Iraq and uh, Iran. And these kingdoms were expansionistic. They were imperial powers. And uh, they were aware of other peoples around them, and they wanted to control them. And uh, Egypt and Assyria and the Hittites, there were battles back and forth at various times in history. Israel happened to be one of those little rest stops on the highway between these superpowers. And the easiest way to get from, say, uh, Nineveh to... Um, pretty much anywhere in Egypt, was to go along the uh, river system until you got near, closer to the Mediterranean, and then go down the coast. And that includes, say, Megiddo. This is why Armageddon, Har, uh, the mountain of Megiddo, is the apocalyptic battle site in the book of Revelation, because um, that's the pass that all the armies go through, to go along the coastal route. And that's where you're going to get more water and food and, and so on. The Bible's written as if Israel is a superpower, but it's really not. It's, it's the rest stop on the highway. So this was the illustration of the New, Jer New Jersey Turnpike, which is a toll road, even though it's Interstate 95. Um, and so you have to pay the toll when you get off the turnpike. But if you need a rest stop, you can use one of the rest stops in the middle of the turnpike. So you're not paying your toll. Um, and that's kind of, uh, sometimes I think about Israel as one of those rest stops. Uh, in its own mind, it's a legend. And from the writings, you would think it was a legend. But I suspect from uh, the, the perspective of the Hittites or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Egyptians, they just really weren't that interesting. It's not that they had no knowledge of them, but they just weren't really that interesting because they weren't a threat. Uh, and I, I don't think that we always uh, retain that notion when we're reading these texts. And yet in America, we talk about being this city on a hill. Yeah. 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 The rest stop on a hill. Somehow it's not as sexy. <laughs> so, so yeah, so we, we would have a hard time understanding how the Bible relates to humanity because yeah. of our warped view of who we are as humans. Mm. Yeah. Maybe now. I mean, I think, yeah, it, yeah I'm not an American historian. Maybe um, it wasn't the case, you know, Hundreds of years ago? Well, America's also had a history of isolationism. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the work that that image is doing in American political and religious thought ebbs and flows. I found the passage. Okay. Ezekiel it. 18. It's long. So the word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? Quote, the parents eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or have sexual relationship relations with a woman during her period. By the way, that's also in Leviticus. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, 
but gives his food to the hungry, provides clothing for the naked. So he goes on and on and on, right? Then he gets to verse 10. Suppose he has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of these other things, though the father has done none of them. He eats at mountain shrines. He defiles his neighbor's wife. He oppresses the poor and needy. He commits robbery. He does not return what he took in pledge. Again, goes on and on and on. Well, so will such a man live? He will not, because he has done all these detestable things. He is to be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. And I think that's just it right there, his own head. This is about, this was the first time I remember as, as a young, you know, younger Christian back, I would say even when I was start studying the Bible in my early 20s, and I thought, oh, yeah, this is about personalized sin. And it allowed me to actually finally see Hebrew scriptures from that Christian perspective that I'd heard all along. But it's such a, I, I don't, <laughs> yeah. Now I look at it as, and it's like, it's one part of the whole. Like this, you, you, you explain, <laughs> oh, yeah, we look no, at that one passage, you know, it can help is, us. This is what we do, right? Yeah, we do that. We, we sort of proof um, text. And I wonder if this was just one of those particular times during the time of Israel where Ezekiel's like, let me throw the Israelites on, on this sort of like, trail of let's confusion, if you will, because they think it's this way, but now let's make them responsible for themselves. You know, and this goes back to the conversations that, that I have, and even Rob, you and I have had that with somebody recently about, you know, the inward check before the outward, like, you know, it's all about yourself. Not don't, don't worry about others. This was a recent conversation that we had with somebody. And I was like, no, I, I think that's a really, it's a bad binary. This is a horrible binary. It's both. And it always has been. I think, uh, I, I also think here that, that the assumed knowledge, uh, the assumed situation in Ezekiel is that, oh no, this the father's responsible. So Ezekiel's, I, I read this as the assumed norm is that, that there is intergenerational responsibility. Um, and some of that is how do we assume the living conditions were for families? Is it like modern American culture where a number of people, I won't even say all people, but a number of people, right, don't live with their parents. A number of people do, right? But, but we have some archaeological evidence of Israelite dwellings, depending on the period of time, which would suggest you have multi-generations there. Um, grandparents, parents, children. So three generations. So if you talk about three generations being punished, if you wipe out one house, that's three generations. Um, so it seems to me that there is an assumption that this intergenerational responsibility holds, that Ezekiel's working with that notion in the back of his head. So that typically if a son is uh, doing all these things, then the, the parents would be held responsible. Um, we probably don't, you probably didn't hear that notion when uh, you heard that in earlier no, days. No. <laughs> um, so I think this would be a break with it. Um, I can think of other texts where if parents have uh, a, a, a son who's rebellious and uh, won't listen to them and as a drunkard, they take them to the elders. And if the elders find that, that that's a, a true case, then they stone the, the son to death for being rebellious and a drunkard. And all Israel will hear and be afraid. Um. <laughs> yeah, even if you, have, you curse your father, you could get stoned. This yeah, is lots of things happen. It's a very patriarchal culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that, is that the level of individualism that you were taught? I don't think so. 
But, but I think that there's a notion of intergenerational responsibility that, that um, Ezekiel, I mean, I'd have to spend a little more time yeah. with it, but probably working against. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about, uh, I have so many questions and you guys jump in anytime, but I, I'm wondering, do you personally think it's still important as it was specifically in the Bible to speak of God in these anthropomorphic terms? Why, why not? Do I think it's important? Uh, my question is, what else do we have? Yeah, I was recently, I was talking to my wife about this actually recently as well and going, this is all, this is all we have. So when you start talking about uh, this, the philosophical language or even in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, it's just a little bit too nothing. It's void of any kind of substance. I'm like, yeah, so I guess I would agree with you. You guys disagree with us right now. I, I, st- I still like to use that kind of language. Are we all in agreement with each other? Come on, somebody disagree. Okay, I'll disagree. Um, I mean, well, I don't know if I want to disagree or not. The question be- for me becomes, what what other possibilities are there? There are other metaphors used of God other, that are not anthropomorphic, right? But who wants to talk about God as a rock? Well, a lot of people do. Yeah. Depends on whether it's stable and firm or being thrown through your window, right? <laughs> I think those are different images. Um, or one, it's a boulder that's crushing you in, in your car, right? Because we're in Colorado. Uh, boulders fall off mountains and they kill people. So, right? I mean, that sucks. Um, so, I... It, um, or even, so how about this? The ground of being, Paul Tillich. <laughs> I like Tillich's work, but what does that even mean half the time? Must be like, what is a ground of being? Yeah, you can talk, you can, but at least when you have a picture of something, you can relate to it. Well, is, is I, it, right. I don't think the ancient Israelites were worried about all of these questions. Some, some were right. The majority weren't. Well, and I understand that. I'm, I'm just curious how this would relate to today, and if it's still important, because we, because we do have people who they want to take out father and mother and rock or shepherd or gardener. Uh, and yet, if you if you go to like you know Tillich or anybody, and you go, well, ground of bean doesn't help people either. I don't think yeah, it does. I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and but it does seem like, um, and this this see this is where I I feel like I'm probably probably talking about things I have no business talking about. But it does seem like it actually is the cause of why some people perhaps. Uh, and this is just speculation, right? But it might, it, it's perhaps a cause for why people leave the Judeo Christian practice. You know, there's uh, less ambiguity, you know, uh, ambiguity, that's the word I'm trying to think about, um, in whatever tradition they might be in um, that doesn't leave space for, uh, for God in a, um, you know, little less anthropomorphic state. It seems like it could also be a reason that people turn away from, from Judeo Christian faith and practice. I could see how it's more useful uh, because our experiences living as humans is all we really have to, you know, we we don't know what it's like to be a dolphin. So, or a rock, but I think that's helpful, but I don't necessarily think it's very accurate um, as far as what, God would actually be. So there are lots of metaphors we use to make sense of ourselves, of our world, right, of other things. Um, one of the things about 
the whole anthropomorphic, so God having a body, uh, having human form. I think in the ancient world, this is how people thought about them. There's a there's this relief in the British Museum. Uh, sorry, this is a total nerd moment. Um, as if the rest of this hasn't been. <laughs> so, so there's a relief at the British Museum that um, comes from Assyria, uh, one of the palaces, um, I think, in Nimrud. And, and, and so there's probably Ashurbanipal, total geek moment, I realize. Um, I just, it helping me to place it uh, historically. Where the Assyrian soldiers are carrying on their shoulders it looks like people sitting on thrones and the placard will tell you that these are gods of other people being carried back to Assyria to be placed in the temple of the, of the Assyrian God. Cause that's what they would do. Um, they would capture these idols and when they hauled them back home, that was a way of signaling in a material fashion that this God is now subservient to my God. So you people are subservient to me because your God is subservient to my God because my God kicked the living stuffing out of your God. And, and if that hadn't happened, you wouldn't be sitting here in my temple, right, uh, eating at my table, uh, serving me. Um, so there was a way in which that really is embodied, um, and I really mean embodied, right? Gods are embodied in, in, in human form because they have human kinds of attributes. And I think that's partly the argument I'm making by saying it's time to retire the notion that God is love because that's a human emotion. That's, a, that's something humans can do. They can do so much more than that. So why don't we let God do so much more than that, right? Israel thought of God in the ways that other peoples did and they, they attributed to God a whole range of emotions. And, and thus that, I think, gave them freedom to respond to this God as they would respond to other humans. I don't know how they responded to a rock. Um, immovable, I don't know. Uh, you know, but it worked. Um, so can we get away from the anthropomorphic? I think not. The bigger question for me is, do we reduce the Bible to saying God is anthropomorphic? And then what does that mean? If you take Genesis 1 and 2, the God in those two creation stories are really theologically different. One's very transcendent. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and said, let there be light, and there was light. No fuss, no muss. I speak a few words, it happens. In the second creation account, God's got no clue what's coming next. Well, let's mix a little mud and I'll blow in the nostrils and, ooh, what do you know? This thing lives. Now what? Well, I'll put it in this garden. Now what? Right? I mean, and I'd love to tell that story to my students and I'll say, okay, so God has to find an appropriate companion for this earth creature God has made. So, you know brings slugs, pucker up, buddy boy, and, you know, plant one on the slug. Uh, there's a whole host of creatures, right? Um, if, if we were to take that story literally, right, God is like clueless, right? This is a voyage of discovery for the big divine being. Well, what'll work? I don't know. I never made one of these before. Let's try this. 
It's a very anthropomorphic notion. It's a very imminent notion of God. God gets God's hands dirty. God blows life into the, the nostrils of the earthling. God has to f- sort of figure things out because God doesn't know. In the other one, the transcendent view, it's, it's, it's much more of a plan. And it's, it's, the story itself is just beautifully written and structured and balanced. Israel's holding both of those things together in the text that it passes down. And so for Christianity, this is also part of the tradition. Uh, And I feel like part of my argument here is to reclaim other parts of the tradition that over time we have let go. Um, to, to, To realize the richness of that tradition to know that we're just in a moment in history and that there are other resources that are available that within the context of the worshiping community could be life-affirming and life-giving. That maybe, uh, to come back to your observation, Jesse, about, okay, God of love is very easy to accept. What's so hard about creator? Or if you're an oppressed people, what would be so hard about accepting God as the kick-ass um, you know, take no prisoners, God. Because in I don't think Israel, for most of its existence, had the military capacity to do the things it said it could do. Right? We really don't like the notion that Israel went in and conquered the land of Canaan and wiped out every living being that wasn't an Israelite. And the problem is, Israel also knew that was kind of fantasy, because they had judges, in which there are clearly lots of people running around, and no tribe can do it on their own, and they're not all unified. And this is no mighty military force. These are people who are living with other people and contesting with one another for space so that their populations can live. Um, There's this back and forth with them. But if you're an oppressed people, if you are the people who are by the rivers of Babylon and your oppressors are mocking you, then yeah, I can see how people would say, you know, blessed is the one who takes your babies and bashes their heads against the rock because I've seen you do it to dozens of my babies. And I hope to God there is a God that will let that happen to you. Now that, that's real human emotion, vengeance and suffering and saying, I want a God like that. Who will, who will stand up and fight for me? Where does that happen? And, and I, that, that's part of the tradition, right? I, I'm not trying to support U.S. domination over all other peoples, right? I, I, I think these are, these are all messages there. Um, and, and I'm aware of the, right, like most things, what can be done for good can also be done for ill. Um, and I, I don't have an easy answer for that. I don't think Israel had an easy answer for that either. Yeah, yeah, bashing, yeah. Ooh. The, yeah, the ba- that happy the, note. The, the bashing babies part, that's a tough one. It's always yeah, a hard one. That, is that yeah. in Psalms? That's in Psalm 137. And we cut in, the, if you look at the um, lectionary that gets used by a lot of Protestant denominations, those verses are cut out. Sure. Right? Because we don't know what to do with that. Oh my God, no, I don't want the violent God. Okay, maybe in American congregations that's appropriate. Right? Because we have the military might. We have the economic strength. We have the political muscle to do a lot of nasty things. So maybe we shouldn't be reading that. And this is where I say, and yeah, we don't own the Bible, and it's not just exclusive to us. There are communities that do have that happen. 
I think about social media right now where you, you do have people yelling, screaming at each other back and forth, yeah. not talking to one another. There's no dialogue. Right. It's, it's a lot of angry monologues. And yet then there, are, there is like the pious Protestant Christian posts. I don't know if you, you guys have seen this. And there are people who say, you know, today, regardless of, of who wins, love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, it's that simple, people. And then I go back to these conversations that you're talking about with God and the Bible. I go, is it really that simple when we know what's happening around us and people's lives who are really hurt and a toxic, oppressive like this regime thing that uh, affects the whole that because we're interconnected, is it easy to say? Oh, you just love God and love your neighbor. It's because I've seen these posts. I don't know if you guys have on Facebook or Twitter. It's there, and I get a little angry when I see that because it seems a little self righteous and it also seems irresponsible and it doesn't seem real. Yeah, well, it's self serving for sure. I mean. I'm not, again, I'm not again, giving people this sort of, uh, oh yeah, go out and just yell at people. And, um, I mean, it's, it's uh, like you had said, like, I'm, we're not giving ourselves this excuse to just be violent creatures, but you know, as Miguel de la Torre, who was once on our podcast had said, he's like, I am a violent man trying not to be a violent man. And I'm like, yeah, when he said that, I go, that resonates with the one, the God of the Bible and just who we are as humans. Sure. I mean, yeah, that, that's a lot of that practice is self-therapy, right? I mean, that we see on social media that says, no matter, you know, we're, you know, no matter your politics today, love, love your neighbors yourself. That's coping, right? Probably. Yeah. I got to kind of disagree a little bit with that. I think there is a place for that because, you know, in my community outside of brew theology, there's a lot of people who don't think about these types of things. They don't try to connect with um, higher power or seek, you know, a, a moral structure that they can live by and try to live a good life. So a lot of people just, I don't know, try to, you know, get the big house, the big car, they like have these dreams to do these things and they don't think about that kind of stuff. So maybe that is at least, you know, maybe it's, you know, Mark had mentioned, you know, it's kind of this whole God is love thing is kind of like a sugar packet. It's not something you can live on. You can't sustain on that idea alone, but I think maybe it is helpful for some people that aren't willing to dive into these issues. So I would add, right, sugar is a great um, flavoring to have, right? It's, it's important. Uh, a little bit goes a long ways. It's sort of like salt in that regard too, right? One of the things that, I, that I'm also conscious of is that things like love your neighbor as yourself is biblical, and it's also stating the ideal, right, that our, that our better angels, right, to, to, to whom do we listen? Um, and, and there is a, a, somebody brought this up at Brew Theology the other night about, yeah, but these are sort of the things we tell ourselves that we want to live up to. And I think those are important. I have uh, Michelle Obama um, commenting about the presidential election and the tenor of it two years ago and saying, you know, when they go, ho- go low, we go high, um, because she's, I heard her as in part saying, look, we, we hold ourselves to a higher standard. So I think that to say we love our neighbor as ourselves is one of those things that is well and truly appropriate to strive for, right? That, that there's a balance here in saying the Bible and the tradition allows for the pain and the anguish, the joy, the celebration, the whole range of human emotions, right, to be brought into 
the life of a, of a worshiping community. Um, that's the community I know. I, I, these are the kinds of things I know best. Um, and that, that potential is there. It's not done very often, right? Um, and I think that's a way in which the, the God is love piece as an ideal just tr- trumps everything. Um, it, it, it sort of uh, represses all of the other things. I think it's still possible to say, um, I'm oppressed, here's how I feel. And the Bible and, and our community has the, has the capacity to accept that within its communi- communal life and to say, that's okay. And now, I, you know, I, I can imagine myself saying, I want that. I want that God who is the God of justice and who will make that person suffer because of how they've made me suffer. But I know that my tradition also has within it that the suffering I'm going through, I really wouldn't wish on anyone, no matter what they've done for me. There are people who are capable of that. Am I capable of that? I don't know. Um, you know, I hear Miguel uh, De La Torre saying that in part, right? If he says, I'm a violent man, but I'm trying not to, he's, he's, he's both acknowledging a reality and another reality, which is trying to hold to something higher, at least as I hear him. Um, and I, I, I'm trying to pull both of those together, right? Because I think that that's, I, I talked about having a rich, robust theology, and I think that's, we don't have enough of that in U.S. Christian. That's why we don't just drink one type of beer. <laughs> it makes perfect sense for the beer drinkers out there. I love a good bourbon barrel-aged, rum barrel-aged, Avery stout. But man, can you imagine drinking that all day long, every That's day? Right. Come on, give me a lager. <laughs> give me a sour, an IPA, mix it up. Give me the uh, Avery lager you. out of um, Boulder, Colorado. But- <laughs> I, I am curious, Mark, uh, if, we could, if we could get personal here toward the end, if that's okay, because practical theology seems to be important to you and me, and I think a lot of people that, are, that listen as well. So ways in which you think and speak about God that are different from this just God is love realm that, that, that we have, you have debunked. You know? how, how, how have these ways in which you think and speak about God affected you personally cultivated a deeper robust theology practically for you and if you could just you know give an example or two that'd be great i yeah i love that i i guess i would say that where i am right now is um some combination of reverence and irreverence <laughs> that that the more that, that that here's where my years of reading bible and spending a long time thinking about it and wrestling with it, teaching it, trying to explain it, trying to figure out what I think about it, changing how I think about it, all of those kinds of things. Um, that I'm, I'm at a place where I have permission to think and to respond. That, I, that I'm not worried about, I'm not worried about orthodoxy. Um... Whether I could get ordained again is another question, <laughs> um, because there are lots of people who are very worried about orthodoxy, and I, I understand that. I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm not, and I am. I, I'm not because I don't have to hold to particular 
theological claims other than I think that, that for the tradition of which I'm a part, um, the communities within which I move, the Bible is authoritative, and it's authoritative for me. And it's, I'm not with Karl Barth, Jesus loves me, you know, this I know because the Bible told me so, and that says it all. But rather, Bible tells me a whole bunch of things. And that has allowed me to uh, move and think theologically in in more expansive ways to come back to Rob, your comment about spaciousness um, or the language of depth, Jesse, um, to think of God in more complex ways. Um, that, and part of that is shaped by the work of Eli, Elie Wiesel, Eli Wiesel in the trial of God, where uh, it's a play where the, where the camp it, it's set in a concentration camp and, and the people in a cabin are having a debate, a three-day trial about God and whether God's responsible for the suffering that they're through. And, and I'm not going to have all the details correct, but basically at the end they find God guilty. And people are like, well, now the hell, what the hell do we do now, right? You've taken my God away from me. Um, and, and then, you know, the guards are coming for selection. And what the hell do we do? And the answer is, well, it's time for prayer. Let's pray. And for me, for, I think for Wiesel, that was the obvious answer. I think for most Christians, that's not the obvious answer. I think for me, that is the obvious answer. That, that I'm linked to, to thinking about and, and, and understanding myself vis-a-vis this Christian God, filtered through a Protestant, North American lens, uh, and I get that. But there's something to be, right, the option for me isn't really, okay, I can, I can now become a Buddhist. Somebody once said to me early in my teaching career, you should become a Buddhist because you're so logical. And it's like, I had to think about that for a while, logically, right, and ration my, reason my way through that. And ultimately, I decided I could, but I can't give up the deism piece because it's so baked into me, right? That, that's, that's deeply into the fibers of who I am and just how my brain works because of how I was brought up. Um, this is why in Judaism it takes three generations, right, to really truly become Jewish, um, because it takes a while to, to 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 transition and to become, what anybody would say it this way, but become enculturated in the ways that Jews are enculturated. I think Christians are enculturated that way. I think Buddhists are probably enculturated that way. Um, so, all of that is a is a nerdy way to say I I have. Uh, I would say I have a, um, a deeper understanding and, and ways of thinking about this divine being whom I'm linked to whether I want to be or not. Do I think God exists? I don't know how to answer that question. Am I an atheist? No, I think I'd say I'm an agnostic. Because I, I don't know. Uh, by the scientific canons that I also affirm. Does it open up the way that I can talk and think about God? I think so. Would I like to see others open up and, and talk about God in other ways? I think so. Because for me, that comes back to the, to the community question. To allow God more, to be more, um, I think has good payoff. 
It can make community life richer. It, and, 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 and I can imagine a lot of communities where that happens, right? Where we say, okay, God loves us, and I feel accepted by that. I also still bring with me pain, and I, I, and I bring with me perplexity, and I, I bring with me senses of injustice. And I want to say, and guess what? God's also that too, right? That the community can hold on to that too. That those are pieces you don't have to check at the door, when you come in to be part of this community, rather you can bring all that shit with you and we'll just sort through it and see if there's a pony. Maybe there will be, maybe there won't, maybe there'll be a scorpion, right? I don't know. Um, but, but there's, there's an honesty for me in how, right? If, 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 if a modern community, if a bunch of Christians had to put together the Bible today, I think a whole bunch of stuff would end up on the cutting room floor. And Marcion would love this, right? Marcion's, what, about a third century Christian thinker who didn't like the Old Testament and a lot of the New Testament, got rid of it, and then was labeled a heretic, and that was the end of that. Um, not really, but sort of the end of that. Um, and we still do that, right, with canons within canons. Um, everybody has their own, own portions of the canon, right? I'm not such a prophet's guy. It doesn't engage me as much. Um, but we all have our canons within canons and things that we uh, uh, accept. But if we can hold on to more of it, I think that has good, good, will pay good rewards for communities today. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but the, no, the, it's great. The unpredictability of God, I think, is something that will stick with me from tonight, too. You talked about unpredictability of God and that being something that that you know, people can be okay with, right? The permission yeah. piece that you talked about. And that's where a lot of what you talk about, it makes me think about Buddhism. I mean, I was thinking about that last Thursday. I've been thinking about it a little bit tonight, just in terms of bringing, as you talked about, kind of bringing everything and that's okay. And bringing your whole, your whole self and all the baggage or the shit into the, you know, into the church and, and that being okay. Um, because I, it goes back to the piece that resonated with me so much about reasons people decide I'm done with this. Yeah. You know, I can't, it, I, my whole self is not welcome here or I don't feel as though it is. And so, right. um, so I'm going to find something different. And, um, and in a lot of ways in the U S like that's become, you know, that's turned east, you know, turned, um, toward Eastern, uh, tradition or either practice or actual, you know, or religious, um, practice, which I don't, you know, I don't know that I think is all bad or anything like that, but, um, it feels like that's where, uh, people say, forget it. I'm, I'm done. So I think it turns, I think it, it shakes out in other ways too, right? That, that if, if, so, yeah, sorry, too many thoughts all at once. One is, is the Bible a book of answers? I would say no. A friend of mine, Tim Beale, wrote a book, Rise and Fall of the Bible, where one of the things he says is, it's a book of questions, right? We, we've got the wrong framework on it. Certainly, that's how I experience it. I typically walk away with more questions than I do with answers. Um. The other thing is, I think that, that in the face of, I can't relate to this, there's another response, which is, I'm going to go to a community where the preacher tells me, 
this is what God says, and this is the truth, and it's real simple. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a one or a zero. It's very binary to think about computer coding. Uh, it, it, it's either a switch that's on or off. There's no middle ground. You don't have to worry about it. It's, it's not hard to think about. This is a book of answers. Um, and, and, and it's a real simple thing and you have this relationship and this is what you're supposed to do. And that's how it works. Um, so I think, I think these things break out in different kinds of ways, sort of depending on, on what people are looking for. Um, and I think I, so I've told people when I, when I first started talking about some of this stuff, my wife in particular was like, this is unappealing, right? Because you're saying, well, God, God's just angry. Most people got that about the Old Testament, right? They're just like, this is an angry, vengeful, warring God. I don't want that. I don't need that. You know, we're done with that. And, and I realized, yeah, I don't think I'm explaining myself well enough. <laughs> and I still may not be explaining myself well enough. So that would be a fair critique. Because I see it in my mind, it's beautiful. <laughs> um, uh, because it's 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 a it's a whole complex of the painting, right? It's a whole canvas. It's not a single piece. Uh, after years and years, I finally went to the Clifford Still Museum. Sorry, another nerdy moment, because I like abstract art, and and still has these huge, enormous canvases, uh, you know, twelve feet by eighteen feet or something. I don't know exactly the dimension, but they're huge. They're enormous. And he'll have all this color on him, and then he'll have this single line going vertically across his canvas. Um, and and I, 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 I'm evoking that because I think what Pam was saying, like, if you say God is anger, then there's really no other, nothing else on the canvas. There's just that one thin line running down it. Like, yeah, and that's not, I, ha, I can see all of the colors, right? It, it, there's more going on there than just that. I just haven't, like, said enough yet. Um, I, I've realized over the years that when I'm, thinking about God is love and, right, it's not, it's not just these other things. And I'll say to my students, we need a more robust theology, a more robust understanding of God for the possibilities that offers the community to be, to be practical, to be real with people, right? Let people be real about their lives. It's not necessarily what you're going to preach from, if you're in a parish, uh, from the pulpit every week. It's, not, it, it's equally not the steady diet. Right, it, it's 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 all of these things together. Right, it's a canvas that has a bunch of colors with it. It's a it's a it's a meal that has various items on the plate. Uh, right, it, it's it's going to the brew pub uh, and having twelve different beers that you can can drink from, rather than just say you know the light three point two beer um, that, that you have to drink every day, every week in mass quantities. Um, hey, there are a lot of Americans that drink Coors Light, Bud Light, Miller Light. I, I didn't want to accuse uh, any particular <laughs> label, but um, you know, those work. Yeah, I love it. I, I love your your hope for the church and hope for humanity. I think that I think that if I would have been raised with this type of mentality and the friends around me, I mean, I think our conversations would have looked different. I think we wouldn't have fallen asleep at church. I think we would have. In middle, so I was a youth pastor for a lot of years, and though our middle schoolers, they were the ones who would ask these types of questions. Oh yeah, and they were the ones who would be uh, well, I mean, because that's. And have you ever <laughs> noticed in a children's sermon that's where most adults learn everything? Mm-hmm. In my experience, no, I, I you, you yeah, can I ask agree. them what was the sermon about. 
And then no you, idea. Mark yeah, was flapping his you lips about something, but you know, it's Ryan did this great killer children's section. I got that one. <laughs> and I got to say once a year when I got to do the VBS, uh, you know, the youth pastor went in to do a little sermon. Like those were fun times. Cause you really had to be creative with yeah. these stories. Right. When's the last time you saw many pastors do that? No, you, yeah. you know, because orthodoxy seems more important Yeah, and keeping people um, in the seats, you know, butts in the seats, you know, Cash in the offering plates. Questions are oh, messy, man. man. Questions so, here, are messy. Yeah, reading this, the Old Testament as a book of questions, uh, reading the Bible as a book of questions. That's that's messy. Yeah, it's but what if you say, and that's what our tradition gave us, not the book of answers, right? The word of God is what? Yeah. Not this. Right? You're, you've got me on board. That's <laughs> I I could I could I could ask questions all night about, yeah. you know, how you, uh, you know, your reflections on, um, the Bible and, you know, and, and the, and you, the United States, right? Like yeah. the, the, um, the discomfort with, you know, ambiguity from, from manifest destiny to, you know, all the sort of the historical deep rooted, um, rugged individualism, all those deep rooted, uh, things that we um, that we sort of have in our history, and how sort of how you know Christianity in the U.S. Uh, you know, a book of questions feels uncomfortable, and why why that is, or what reflections are on that. I'm sure that would be a much longer conversation, but that feels like part of something that makes us uncomfortable as a generalization. So. That I don't find that terribly surprising, though, right? Because I think most of us live in a world that's uncertain. Um, I'm I'm thinking about news stories I've seen of farmers who are are you know they're harvesting soybeans, and the the soybean sales because of the trade war, trade war have yeah. dropped like 94%. Hey, I'm from Iowa. I, I, yeah. I hear you. Um, and you know, is this going to end? Are we going to be able to ship these somewhere? Or is there going to be a market there somewhere when we get done with this? I, I've got hundreds of thousands of dollars, my whole livelihood riding on these soybeans that are sitting at, at grain elevators they're sitting in storage. They're maybe got a six month shelf life to say nothing of, you know, I had a fight with my spouse or, you know, my car broke down or my tractor had something, you know, and I got to call some tech, right. To, to run the, the, the software. I was talking to my cousin who runs a ranch in, in central Washington. And he's like, you know, I've got old tractors that I hold onto because I can fix those. And I got other equipment where I got to call the John Deere guy to come out with his laptop to tell me what's wrong with it. Right. And to fix the GPS on it. That's well, or whatever it is. Right. right, and, right. and when he fixes it, when he says, well, my computer tells me it's a $3,000 part. Right. I mean, and, and right. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking particularly about, I'm trying to think outside of my own immediate context. I, there are lots of people who have lots, lots of uncertainty in their lives all the time. So church is a place where don't give me more uncertainty. Give me certainty. God loves me. Uh, I'm saved. Uh, th- th- I'm going to heaven. 
there will be a heavenly reward for this, right? That, that, that all of this is going to be, it's not going to matter. I think it'll be a hard sell. I think it would be a hard sell. And I'm not sure it's the sell to make to a congregation to say, the Bible is a book of questions, not answers. And what are, what, we've sold you a bill of goods. We've told you life is really simple. Believe in Jesus, believe in God, everything will work out. Doesn't matter. Everything, because that's, that in some ways, that's what we're saying. It doesn't matter. Just all you got to know is God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. I think it's a hard sell to say, actually, we think what our tradition tells us is this. Life is uncertain. That this God is unpredictable. But this is, this is also who we are. The certainty is we're locked in with this being. We're locked in in this life that we don't know exactly what's going to happen. We can try to persuade this God if we think this God is able to do anything to certain kinds of behavior, right? Some of my favorite stories, I should have said these to your daughter earlier, Ryan, are about uh, Abraham negotiating with God over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a good one. Or Moses, when God finds out that they've created the idols, God just like lights up like Vesuvius uh, and is ready to destroy all of them and says to Moses, I'll start over you. you. You'll be the new Abraham. And Moses is like, slow down, big guy. <laughs> right? Um, there, there are these stories in the, in the Bible where they're like talking God off the cliff. Um, and, and what happens if, if a community could find a way to, to bring at least more of that in and to say that uncertainty you have, that's also part of our tradition because that's part of human existence. So you're saying God changes God's mind. Absolutely. Yeah, and that, that was for me, I don't know how many years ago, 10 years ago, when I, when I caught onto these stories going, whoa, this is good, and I allowed myself the freedom to argue with God. Yeah. And it was beautiful. Yeah. Changed my faith. Yeah. Made, made me probably seem a bit crazier to others inside yeah. that, that system. Yeah. But yeah. man, talk about a relief. Like You can finally yeah. voice, you're like... It's like talking to your spouse or your best friend. You get into an argument. Well, this is how I feel, damn it. And yeah. then and then you know you get you get through it, but at least you at least you were honest. Honest to God. That honest that's to God. there it is. There's the title right there. Honest to God. We're not honest to God. We're not honest to right. ourselves. Right. And I think I think there is self-deception there too. Right? Yeah. This was fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Great fun. Uh, great we, questions. We, we got to ask you, you're working on Deuteronomy right now? Is that right? I am. Yeah. Everybody what? should, like, when you're done with the podcast, go read Deuteronomy. I mean, I love Deuteronomy. Stuff. You, yeah, you don't have to great sell Great stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Rob. Awesome. We're going to read Deuteronomy together. That sounds We're going to memorize it. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> what do you say, Jesse? You in Hebrew. Yeah, you guys have fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's even better in the Hebrew. Do so you want to know what I'm working on? Yeah. So... Um, I'm working on a book that I'm tentatively titling Deuteronomy's Subject. Because Deuteronomy is, a, uh, so it's the last book of the Torah, the, of the Pentateuch, of the five books of the, of, well, the law I call the Torah, because it's the teaching and the instruction. Uh, Deuteronomos, the second law, uh, it's sort of a um, retelling. There are various scholarly theories about it. One of the things I'm struck by with it, because I, I read a lot of philosophy, particularly the work of a uh, French philosopher named Michel Foucault, uh, 
who thought through philosophical questions with with uh, particular historical um, examples as he was trying to explain the present. And one of the things he's interested in, he does a lot of work with Christianity, and he's interested in how do we get to things like uh, when we go see a doctor, we tell our doctor pretty much anything about our life, from our sex life to how our hips work to, you know, did I have chicken pox as a kid to, right? We, we, it's like we confess everything to our doctor. And he's like, why? Why do we do that? Why do we think that's normal? Um, and so he goes back into uh, Greek and then into Christian history and thinking about how people come to understand themselves, what he calls the subject, um, and and how are these operations? How how does how does confession become something we think is part of Western existence? It's just a normal kind of thing, um, and the ways that that shifts and changes through time. And I'm curious with with really with all five of the books of the, of the Torah, of the Pentateuch, what is this Israel that's being envisioned, that's being brought into existence through the words of the, of the text? Um, there's a phrase from, from the Qumran, the people of the book, which is sometimes understood as being a reference to the three big monotheistic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. In the Quran, it has to do with Jews, Christians, and Sabaeans, a people were all monotheistic, but all had a had the Bible. Um, and I find that a really curious phrase. What does it mean to be a person of a book? How do you become a person of a book? Um, I'm teaching at Trinity United Methodist uh, a Sunday and this Sunday about this topic, and 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 saying books are writing. So how is it that we come to? Why are we people in a written culture, not an oral culture? Because there's still plenty of oral cultures running around. But we, we are, we in the U.S. are predominantly a culture of writing. It's written now maybe with digital if it's on video, um, then it's true, right? Or that's what you can hold people to. And the same sorts of things are happening with Deuteronomy. It's envisioning what does it mean to be Israel? And what does it mean to be Israel in relationship with this God? And I'm trying to, to think some of those pieces through for um, the ways people become Israel is subject to this particular. So and, and I'll just say, in a in a as somebody who's living in the middle of this digital revolution, I've got my smartphone on my desk, right? People say a computer this smart could have gotten the astronauts to the moon. Um, what does it mean to become people of digital devices? Yeah. Ooh. So. I like it. And can people, speaking of digital, can people find you online? I didn't find you on Twitter. Yeah. No? Uh, I liked some of the brute theology things, and you didn't find me because it's Prof M. George. Oh, uh, okay. At Prof M. George. Pro, say that again? At Prof M. George. Okay. I'm gonna, we're going to be friends after this. Okay. On Twitter. Well, can we be friends on Twitter? I can follow you. Yeah. But you're not on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. Oh, okay. I'm not on Facebook. All right. So I have a low digital footprint. Well, in my mind, I do. I think the NSA has a different question. <laughs> well, good stuff. Uh, thanks again, Rob, Jesse, Mark. This was, this was great. Yeah, I this mean, was great fun. Uh, so if you like this episode, make sure you share it online. Go to iTunes. If you just go to iTunes and you rate it, review it, five star, you should do that. Share it. 
We're at Facebook at Brew Theology, Instagram at Brew Theology, and Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. That's it. Cheers. Great. Thanks. <laughs>